In the beginning, there was darkness. Then, there was Paul Brown. Paul Brown transformed the game. Hello, Paul Brown here. Always look on the light side of life. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten. And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. And always look on the bright side of life. Good morning. Cleveland, welcome back to another RIP Sashi shows. So it was a year ago, he was taken from us by Jimmy Haslam, but we're looking just at analytics in sport. Did Sashi do a good job? And we've got an amazing guest today. We've got fantasy football expert and probably 50% of the greatest podcast in NFL history. So if you haven't heard it, Google Hugh Jackson Schematic Atrocities, dropped the 19th of Jan. Um, So on Roto Underworld podcast, amazing look at Lev Bell and his contract dispute and why he'll probably sit out the season. Yes, they predicted it that early. And talking about the cocoon in the NFL. So you've probably got no idea what that means, but pause this podcast, jump on that one, come back in an hour and your life will be a better for it. So, cocoon smasher, all-round knowledge of the game, fantasy football <laughs> expert, Evan Silver. How are you? Jack, it is great to be with you, man. You know, thank you so much over the last year. It hasn't even been a year, has it, since schematic atrocities dropped. It's not. It's been eight months. Um, it's still to this day, like, and I do podcasts, like, I do so many podcasts, and... It's still my favorite one that I ever did. It's the one that I put the most time in to ever doing. Um, I went back and I watched uh, Browns games from their own 16 season on all 22 tape. And I tried to figure out really what at the heart of what went wrong with the 2017 Browns. And it wasn't just, oh, they didn't have great talent. Like we knew that, you know, we knew that they weren't going to be a good team. But why did why was their point differential? Why was their you know defensive plus offensive con, uh, efficiency combined indicative of, of a team that should have won three to five games according to Football Outsiders? You know why did they lose all these close games? And that's what I wanted to get into and explore. They were not the worst team of all time, but their record says said that they were, and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. And to this day. That's the, the podcast that I'm most proud of that I've ever done. And thank you so much for being such a supporter of that. And I'm excited to, to talk about football and the Browns with you, Jack. No, uh, thank you for coming on. Um, it's another massive show. Um, we've had two fantastic guests so far, and Eric Eager from PFF and Zach Moore from Over the Cap, as we just look back at uh, Sashi Brown. Did he do Good job. Did he do a bad job? He wasn't perfect, but uh, he was our saviour with a uh, saving a second and third round pick and many other issues. So, uh, no, 
It's, uh, it's an exciting prospect. Um, Dorsey's come in, being hailed the saviour. But uh, did Sashi get any real players is uh, one thing we're looking at today. Yeah, that's, um, that's, in, that's like playing t-ball. Because if you look at the roster today, did Sasha get any real players? I mean, it would be absurd to argue otherwise. And I know that people look at like, so the Browns were very smart about the way that they went about um, preparing for the 2016 and 2017 and 2018 drafts. They weren't around to execute the picks in the 2018 drafts, but they were very smart about the way that they entered those drafts because they understood that the NFL draft is a low probability proposition. Okay. Low probability proposition. They knew that they had an entire team to rebuild. They essentially needed to rebuild the entire organization. And, you know, you can go back and find quotes from Paul DePodesta and we'll get into who he was. Um, when I start asking you about your background here, Jack, um, but they understood that the NFL draft is a very low probability proposition. Go back and look at the hit rate of quarterbacks from uh, first, just first round quarterbacks who are supposed to be surefire guys from 2015, 2005 through 2015. Okay. It's 38% hit rate, not a good hit rate. Um, so they, and, and that's just at the quarterback position, you know, at, at other positions, you do have, you have some higher hit rates, you have some lower hit rates, but the Browns were very observant to the fact that, uh, it's a, it's a, 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 an event that is highly, highly difficult to predict. And so what they want to do is be able to throw as many darts at the board as they possibly could and get as many young Play, young, talented players on their roster at cheap costs so that they could go out and build the roster in different ways. Sign players that they consider to be long-term building blocks. Perfect example was left guard Joel uh, Betonio. Locked him up long-term. Another great signing, going out and getting Kevin Zeitler. Long-term starter at right guard. Another great signing going out and getting J.C. Treader, okay? You know, having the funds after you do get some hits to be able to lock up guys like Miles Garrett, like uh, Ogan Joby, you know, like Christian Kirksey, like Joe Schobert. You know, being, being able to extend the player, the talent that you already have on your roster. And they were very keen on the idea of uh, just being – like wanting to throw a lot of different darts at the board. So if you look at their hit rate in the 2016 and 2017 draft, you just did like, oh, they drafted, you know, 27 players and only nine are still on the roster. You know, well, guess what? Like six of them are starters. A couple of them have already been in the Pro Bowl. Several, several of them are on their way to the Pro Bowl, you know, and they didn't care that they, they knew that they were going to miss on a bunch of dudes. Like they knew that because they had an understanding of how the NFL draft works. What I want to ask you, Jack, is why do you care about the Browns? Why do you care about the NFL at all? You are from the UK, and I want to hear your story. 
Thank you. So I sort of, when I was younger, sort of eight to ten range, I was on holiday in uh, Florida, obviously visiting Mickey Mouse in Disneyland as a kid, um, and turned on a game when I was out there, and um, just happened to be on TV was uh, New England, Miami, and it was like, oh, first two teams I've seen don't really understand the rules, so sort of trying to work out as you go along, but um, I was like, yeah, I'll go New England because it's got England in the name versus Miami. Um, and purely for that reason, I went, yeah, let, let's be a Pats fan. And then sort of growing up, it's it's not the easiest thing to get access to um, that long ago. But through stuff like playing Madden and um, being able to sort of watch games here and there in the UK, sort of got to the stage sort of five, six years ago when I was a lot more into it. And everyone just attacks you for being the glory hunter for supporting New England, winning every year. Everyone's like, "Oh, you're just choosing because they're the glory best. hunter." What is, it, see, in in America, we call it um, a, a front runner, I guess, or you know, just like a, a yeah, a front runner or a fair weather fan. In in in, in uh, UK, you call it a glory hunter. Yeah, so we use the phrase glory hunter because. There's lots of people that will support their football team that are near to them, but then you've got sort of Man United fans that are all over the country, and it's like, have you ever been to Manchester? And they're like, no. Have have you ever been to a Manchester United game? No. Why are you a Man United fan? Um, So, whereas in the UK, lots more people will go to football, obviously it's a much smaller country, um, easier to get around it. That there's sort of all these fans that support clubs that have got no reason to support that club and no connection to it, even though they've got sort of a Premier League club within an hour, two hours of where they live. Um, so, so they sound like the typical Dallas Cowboys fan. That, that's exactly the sort of... Um, <laughs> they're, 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 for no real reason, they've just grown up and gone, oh, they were winning when I was a kid, I'll support them. Um and I, d- I didn't want to be classed as that guy because even though there was sort of a genuine reason to support New England, I'd obviously never been there or anything. So I was like, I'm going to need another club. Even sort of, this was two years before I chose who I was going to support. It was like, oh, I'll continue supporting New England, but on the lookout for something else. And then it was the 5th of Jan 2016 when it all changed. And Paul D. Podesta was hired by the Browns to a role that, I wasn't even quite unsure what that role was, um, but I was like, "That's the moment. I'm going to be a Browns fan," and I was all in it, all in from then. Okay, okay, okay. Let me make you rewind here. How do you even know who Paul B. Podesta is at this time? Okay, this is January fifth, two thousand sixteen. How do you even know who Paul B. Podesta is? So it had probably been in. 2011, 2012, I think, uh, Moneyball came out, uh, the movie. So having never really watched baseball or anything, I'd just uh, been surfing through which movie to watch. Big fan of Jonah Hill, the actor, and was like, let's stick this on and see what it is. Um, And I I thought it was an incredible concept. Um, So went and bought the book by, uh, is it Michael Lewis? Um, And read that, and it was... Just a brilliant concept of how data can get round judgment in sport. And I was hooked. So from early on, I sort of knew who he was. I still can't get into baseball. Haven't watched a game. My mates are trying to take me. I think it's Boston versus somebody playing in London next year. Um, 
they're trying. I don't know if it'll happen, but uh, it's just it's one of them fascinating sports that is boring to watch in my eyes. But hey, that's just my view on it. No, I can't watch it either. And I actually grew up a, a big baseball fan. I grew up in the Washington D.C. area, and I grew up a huge um, Baltimore Orioles fan. Uh, at the time, they did not have the Washington Nationals. And, you know, I was the guy with all the Cal Ripken posters on my wall. And, you know, I had 200 Cal Ripken baseball cards. You probably don't even know who Cal Ripken was. Uh, Billy Ripken, his younger brother, who is actually now on MLB Network, I have um, a kind of cool little story. So after you used to go, after um, base uh, games at the old Memorial Stadium, uh, you would go to the back of the stadium uh, if you wanted to try to get autographs from the players. And I was like a little kid, you know, and my dad was like, hey, you know, I'll take you to go get, um, you know, some autographs in the back of the stadium. And there were they had some good players on the team at the time. They had um, Harold Baines, Dwight Evans. I was really, really young, and I wanted Cal's autograph. They had Eddie Murray, I believe. Um, I want, But I wanted Cal's autograph, but Cal never came out. Billy did, though, his uh, – his little brother and at when Billy came out, I was like at the front, like everyone was at the fence mm. and um, they put like everyone just pushed toward the fence and I got crunched up against the fence and I could like, I could barely breathe. And um, Billy saw that and he rushed over and he said, everyone move back. <laughs> everyone move back. And he, uh, you know, he, he signed my ball first and, um, you know, that was one of my best run-ins with like a pro athlete love, uh, Billy Ripken to this day, although he is actually kind of anti-analytics, uh, but I, I don't care, you know, because he's, cause he's, he's a Ripken and I, I, you know, I grew up loving him. Um, and I had a bunch of his cards, his most famous car baseball card was one where he was posing in the card. It was for like I don't I can't remember even the brand uh, Upper Deck or something. And in the when he was posing, he had his bat on his shoulder, and someone wrote. Can can I say a, a bad word on the podcast? Yeah, by all means, drop a bad word in there. Okay, I'll just spell it out. At the bottom of the bat. It said F U C K face. Someone played a <laughs> trick on Billy Ripken and wrote F U C K face on the bottom of his bat. And they and they took that picture and used it on his baseball card. And um, that actually became one of the most valuable baseball cards of that era because number one, uh, they had to stop printing it, so it became rare. You know, so there weren't that many that were produced. I happened to get one. I think I paid like $80 for it uh, when I was like 12 or 13 or something. Um, but he had, and actually he wasn't a very good player. He was a second baseman and Cal played short. So it was like, it was pretty cool. He wasn't that good though. He batted at the bottom of the order, but he had a baseball card that had value. And uh, he would, he had a kind of interesting story because of that baseball card, but it, we're, we're getting way off topic here. And, um, all right. But so anyways, I'm going to summarize your fandom with the Browns. So, you know, you kind of took an interest in pro football at a very young age. You, uh, 
you know, you went through a stage where you, you know, decided to become a Patriots fan because, hey, you know, why wouldn't you? They were, you know, they were winning. But then you watched Moneyball, which absolutely, and to me, was very inspiring as well. You watched Moneyball, you read the book, and you were like, you know, screw it. Like, I'm going to become a fan of the worst team in the NFL because I like their process. Yeah, it's buying into sort of a plan and going, they're actually going to do something because it obviously for a fan in any sport, um, but American football is sort of different because there is that roster construction. You need to have sort of an idea and a, a there's a process to building up. It's not like football in the UK or soccer where you can go out and you just go, oh, we're going to buy three or four of the best players in the world and that's it. Um, you've sort of got to develop it and work and add different things. So it, it was really interesting being able to sort of watch what was happening. Um, the Wentz trade, obviously, straight out of the gates was a moment when you go, yeah, this makes sense. Um, we can't win um, this year. No point adding a quarterback because I'd sort of picked up that, hey, the perfect time is that quarterback on a rookie deal. So why would you want that straight out the gate? Um, so it, it was interesting just watching the process. Obviously, hey, I didn't really care that we were losing. Um it, it wasn't something that bothered me too much because it was, yeah, let, let, let's have the first pick for a couple of years. Um, and that, that's where... They had been losing for years before that anyways. Like, that was no different from what the, the teams of the past have been doing. You know, it was what, what brought it to a boiling point was going 0-16. But that was on the coaching staff, Jack. Oh. And that's... And that's what I wanted to expose and feel like I did expose in schematic atrocities because it was, you know, Greg Williams blitzing at a league high rate despite having the lowest pressure rate in the NFL. Your blitzes are not working. Okay. It was, you know, playing man, like barely, or uh, having one of the best passer ratings allowed in the NFL when you played man coverage, but never playing man coverage. It was sticking Jabril Peppers, a, a strong safety, a tap dog, you know, essentially a linebacker out, you know, in a punt return formation on first downs. You know, it was, um, you know, uh, offensively, it was Hugh Jackson's handling of the quarterback situation. You know, David Lee, their quarterback's coach, told Hugh Jackson that Deshaun Kaiser wasn't ready. And Hugh Jackson didn't listen to him. And Hugh Jackson ran him out there and benched him and ran him out there again and benched him, you know, and never showed any confidence in Cody Kessler, who I know people laugh at now, but he actually had a pretty uh, solid rookie season for a rookie quarterback. Um, but he just totally his, his confidence was shot. Uh, uh, also defensively, um, not playing Larry Ogunjobi, even though he was uh, their, their most disruptive interior defensive linemen not uh, and then offensively not giving the ball enough to duke johnson uh who was you know one of their their highest percentage players offensively uh also not utilizing not showing any ability to utilize uh david and joku uh, as a rookie you know playing him like 30 percent of the snaps not showing any ability to uh uh, utilized 12 personnel because at the time, and things have changed since then, but at the time, two of their most effective players in the passing game were Seth DeValve and David Njoku. Just being bad coaches, 
was the reason, like having the worst coaching staff of all time, which we can say now confidently because uh, quantifiably, I mean, what do you, what do you go three thirty six and one? Yep. As the as the Browns head coach, worst head coach of, of all time. I mean, there's no no like everyone should be able to say that unabashedly. Um, but that was at the root of going zero sixteen. They should have been a three to five win team. That's not a good team. But we also knew that they were building for the future. Yeah, and I think it it had been one of them that even if we were expecting those three wins and went zero sixteen, just because hey things didn't go in our favor. If player development was there, and the one frustrating thing is the likes of Jabril Peppers. You speak to some Browns fan, they still think they're a bad player because they were so ingrained in their head of that 40 yards deep in the car park trying to cover a punt return during a uh, sort of a third and one, and he's still back there. It made no sense. And, and if Hugh and the team, even if they weren't doing well game coaching, were developing players and these youngsters were getting better, they, it would have been different. And I think some of these players that so-called busted at the Browns probably weren't actually that bad. It was just a case of... Poor coaching, weren't treated right, and it just didn't work out. And I think if you had some of them now, I'm not saying some of them it is down to them purely, but if they went in with a decent coaching staff and there was some positivity there, I think there'd be different players. Oh, I mean, the best example is Carl Nassib. You know, Carl Nassib, the Browns couldn't figure out really how to use him, I guess. I don't, that's a very kind way to spin it. And now he's like a heavy contributor for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. When the Browns played the Buccaneers early in the season, it was glorious to just see Carl Nassib shred them. Um, you know, karma, karma is, you know, what goes around comes around. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wanted to bring up uh, Jabril Peppers, you know, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but it's true. So a lot of Browns fans didn't like him immediately because he played at Michigan and like every Browns fan on the planet, except for you, probably Jack, uh, is an Ohio State fan. And Ohio State and Michigan have this crazy rivalry to where, you know, unless Jabril Peppers was going to be um, like a great, great safety for the Browns, like they were always going to hate him. Uh, right now, Jabril Peppers, and I'm looking him up on Pro Football Focus, he is the number 24 graded safety out of. 89. So that would be um, an above average starter. Um, you know, not necessarily a big time difference maker, but hey, he's in his second NFL season. He played, he's a guy who played a lot of linebacker in college and is still developing, and you have him for five years. Uh, so, and they got uh, David and Joku also in that same draft, the 2017 draft. They had three first round picks. They nailed Miles Garrett, difference maker. They nailed David Njoku, difference maker. And they have Jabril Peppers, who right now is an above-average starter uh, with the arrow pointing up. No, and the other one, Miles Garrett, is a name that's dropped. And then the the football guys and people like that go, well, Sashi deserves no credit. It was the obvious pick. And it was like, yeah, but you don't accidentally get the first pick in the draft based on what we did in 2016. There was an intention of going out there and going look we want to tank I'll use the word tank because hey that, that's what it was it was strip it back rebuild and then go again and Miles Garrett is a fantastic piece that you build a franchise 
around for years to come. He's a he's a franchise level sort of pass rusher, um, up there with the best in the game. And people don't want to give Sashi any credit for getting a player like Miles Garrett onto the uh, roster and that. And that's just it's nuts that they just can't see that if you draft Carson Wentz in 2016. Yeah, he, he's not going to develop to be that same player that he is now. But at the same time, you're probably going to win a few games. And winning them few games stops you getting a Miles Garrett. And he stops you getting all the other pieces that those deals have allowed you to get. And who knows if someone can sit there, scope out what Carson Wentz might have been. Sort of, If he gets you the three or four wins and then suddenly Miles Garrett's not there. Jabril Peppers isn't there. Njoku's not there. Denzel Ward isn't there now and all that knock-on suddenly has a massive impact. So sucking and getting Miles Garrett is sort of worth it. Yeah, so and you have to, if you're going to really try to understand this, you have to you have to take a big picture approach, okay? So the NFL is a money-making machine. Okay? The NFL, each NFL team has uh, over $180 million in salary cap space. So if you just want to go buy a four to seven win team, like you can, you know, like that's not hard. What's hard is trying to get to the top. Okay. And what's hard is taking L after L after L so that you can try to springboard yourself into a position where you are competing for championships and the Browns have been bad forever. They were uh, an expansion franchise in, I believe 1999, you know, the, um, uh, they, they were, you know, obviously they were around and then Art Modell moved the team and then the NFL, you know, expanded in 1999, the Browns got a team back. And they were terrible every single year. There were a couple of years where it was just complete fluky. Like they went like 10 and six one year with Derek Anderson and, you know, it's just, but it was totally fluky, you know, and they never actually had a good sustainable process. And then they get the, the worst owner in pro sports. Um, and, you know, we don't have to go too deep into Jimmy Haslam, but ask any Tennessee volunteer fan that is like a real big fan about Jimmy Haslam and the Haslam family and the impact that they have had on the Tennessee football program. Ask any hardworking American trucker what they think of the business called Pilot Flying J. You know, I, and I, I'm not going to go. Uh, too deep into that because it, start, it it takes me to a bad place. It makes me depressed, and no one wants to be depressed here. But the the Cleveland Browns are under the leadership of a, 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 a non virtuous individual, a non virtuous individual. So we have to try to get past that, and we have to try to overcome all of these obstacles that we have dealt with. First of all, we we. When we when we were dealt our poker hand, uh, we're dealing with like a like a two and a four because we have no talent on our team. We have a bunch of old dudes. We have some guys who are up for free agency. Mitchell Schwartz. I think that maybe uh, Sashi Brown's biggest mistake was not bring, uh, locking up Mitchell Schwartz. Hmm. But they were also in the at the time in the mode of we're just going to let everybody go. 
we're going to you know get compensatory draft picks for uh, whomever we lose, and we are going to start from ground zero because we have the pledge of ownership. And Paul DePodesta at the time said, you know, one, and you know him coming from baseball and having taken uh, similar strategies with the teams that he worked with in Major League Baseball said the same thing. He said he predicted the the ouster of Sashi Brown essentially because he said ownership is the biggest obstacle because yeah. you know can they have the patience to withstand multiple years of um like essentially like saving money okay it's a very comparable situation just ha- just saving money you're not going to go buy you know a house you're not going to go buy a car you're 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 saving money so that um, and you're saving the assets that you have and sitting on the assets that you have and at some point you are going to take a step forward but it might take three four or five years and Paul DePodesta said that's the hardest thing is the ownership lacking the patience um, you know reacting to the media criticism and that's exactly what he did on that hallowed day on uh, Halloween 2017, he reacted to the media criticism of the uh, the absolute catastrophic error that Hugh Jackson tried to make by trading a second and third round pick for Raiders backup AJ McCarron. It's, it's just nuts when when you just consider it's, it's, that it's trade. It's nuts, Jack. It's nuts. It's, uh, how, how can, the, and the fact that Hugh um, and others were defended in the media, it's like, this is a player you're willing to give up a second and third for, for six months of their contract, and um, a handful of games, and then they hit free agency, and was it day three before he even got really any offers publicly? It was, no one wanted him. It wasn't like, um, it was say, Kirk Cousins, um, where He's gone out and signed a record deal in free agency. Um, for all his ups and downs, he's gone and he's earned a, a decent payday. It was an awful quarterback on the end of their deal who couldn't even force their way into their own team. And what what would that have done? You know, you might have won one game with him. It, it was just the thought that that was a good idea. Because, yeah, if, if they were forcing, say, a deal of two first-round picks and you get some fantastic quarterback... Um, I wouldn't have wanted to do it because the benefit that rookie QB deal gives you if you want to go on and try win a Super Bowl. But they weren't even out there trying to get a good quarterback. They were just getting a backup. And it was just bizarre that anyone who works in the NFL went, yeah, this this is a good idea. Um, Unfortunately, you had to uh, die on the cross to uh, save us from that second and third round pick. But uh, hey, his role will never be forgotten. Not, not by us, not, not by people that are critical thinkers, not by people that are anti-NFL uh, draft revisionism. You know, NFL draft revisionism is the most charlatan analysis that, that you can have. And we started at the top talking about how the NFL draft is already a very low probability proposition. You have a very low hit rate for about a decade span at the quarterback position who plays the most snaps you know who has the ball the most in the nf or you know when when playing football 
And who should be the easiest to evaluate? The quarterback position. But guess what? That's the hardest position to evaluate. So, you know, that, I mean, that's just, you know, very representative right there of how difficult it is to evaluate players who are transitioning from the college game to the program pro game. Sure. There are going to be, you know, the guys that get drafted early in the draft or have a higher hit rate than the guys that get drafted later in the draft. Like it's just, that's obvious, you know, but there are also plenty of bus early in the draft and plenty of dudes later in the draft or even guys that go undrafted that become successes in the NFL. It's just a very, very imperfect process. And once you start to understand that, you understand the approach that Sashi Brown and his colleagues were taking. You understand why the Patriots did the exact same thing for many years. Um, You understand why the Eagles, who won the Super Bowl last year, don't necessarily take that approach but the approach that they take is to trade their draft picks for proven players. Jay Ajayi, Tim Jernigan, you know, Ronald Darby, um, you know, just uh, Nick Foles, you know, going and getting guys that are already proven in the NFL and putting Michael Bennett, putting those guys on their roster as opposed to pretending like they can out evaluate other teams from a college to pro standpoint. Those, those are the teams that are advancing. That's why the arrow was pointing up on the Browns is because they understood the imperfection of the NFL draft and they, you know, planned for the future. That's why the Patriots have been, you know, the best team in the NFL for two decades. That's why, you know, the Eagles won the Super Bowl last year. These teams that are able to understand that there is a competitive advantage to fading the NFL draft process have been able to carve out an advantage over the teams that just idiotically think that they can outdraft other teams. And that's why you see teams like the Giants sucking because, you know, their GM, who was also the GM for many years in Carolina, he has never traded down from a single draft pick in his entire tenure as a general manager, because he believes that he can outdraft other GMs. He thinks that he can out evaluate other evaluators across the NFL. And somehow this idea that about evaluate that there are different levels of evaluators in the NFL has bled into the general uh, population and people that uh, observe the NFL, like you know, fans believe that oh, this guy can really draft, and that guy can can't really draft. But what do you really need to under to really have a grasp on um, uh, evaluators' ability to evaluate? You need like five thousand at least iterations of a draft to really be able to separate guys that can outdraft other guys because so much of that is like about luck. Hey, uh, did our guys stay healthy? Did, did our draft picks stay healthy? Hey, you know, how did our draft picks react when they got a huge freaking signing bonus at age 21? How would you have reacted when you were 21 years old if you were handed 
so much as a $120,000 signing bonus, which is uh, corresponding with like a fifth round draft pick. How would you, what would you have done at age 21? At age 21, if I would have been handed $120,000, I don't think you would have seen me again, Jack. (laughs) You, You wouldn't have seen me again. You know, imagine if you were in the, you know, the second round and you were handed a, a $2.1 million signing bonus. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. That that hits different dudes differently. Okay. So when you adjust for all the, the unpredictable factors like injury, how is money going to affect, uh, you know, you as a person, hey, is your is your mom and dad going to try to make off with the money that, that you just got? Like, that's another factor, all that kind of crap. You know, there's, there's stories like that rampant throughout the NFL. All these different factors that, you know, are, are so in, unpredictable and contribute to the success or lack thereof of draft picks, once you adjust, I mean – you need like just a massive sample size. You can't go, oh, two draft classes and this guy can't draft. Or, oh, two draft classes and this guy can draft. Like that's absurd. It's, it's legitimate stupidity. If, if you were going to tell me that some guy can draft because, you know, he had, um, I don't know, what you consider like 10 hits out of 17 as opposed to some other guy can't draft because he had six hits out of 17, you know, which is like a, a two draft sample size. I mean, you're, you're, you're fooling yourself, man. Like that is not real. That's not real. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the Eagles. So it's something you've plugged before and it's a fantastic watch out there. If you haven't seen it, uh, if you ever Google Howie Roseman analytics conference, he spoke at the Wharton, uh, people's, um, analytic conference in 2018. It was just fascinating watching him explain um and i thought the funny thing was where he basically said time and time again of never trade everything and go all in on one player because it rarely ever works out um and you'll usually end up losing from it and then uh, the guy presenting just went just like carson wentz and how he went yeah pretty much like that just don't do it and uh even howie roseman knew that the carson wentz deal was a massive gamble for them it's obviously paid off but you've got to be aware that that was a massive risk for the Eagles that could have yeah. backfired. Let's, and- let's, let's get back into um, the, the foolishness that was uh, the revisionist draft crowd that just crushed the Browns every day about Deshaun Watson and Carson Wentz. Because that is the worst form of analysis. That, that is charlatan analysis. You're, you're a fraud if you were doing that kind of analysis, I mean, and, and I am not exaggerating. You're you're a fraud because that's not how the shit works. Okay, Carson Wentz. Okay, you have to understand what kind of a prospect Carson Wentz was. And look, he was a very talented dude. But at North Dakota State, he played in Division One AA, which, if you go through and look at, you know all the starting quarterbacks in the NFL, so few are from mm. Division One AA, number one. Um, number two, he had a bunch of injuries in college. Um, and he missed a bunch of time, and he was a, what amounted to really like a, a year and a half or two-year starter at North Dakota State. Um, 
And what's so funny is that like the public is so big on like injury, like, Oh, he always gets hurt, but they just totally ignore the fact that Carson Wentz was hurt so much in college. And by the way, already uh, suffered, suffered a uh, double uh, knee ligament tear in the NFL. Mm. Um, Carson Wentz also was a game manager at North Dakota state. He was on a team that was just crushed their competition. And, you know, they were, uh, they, they were champions at that level. Um, and when he entered the NFL, he had like three good games to start off his career. And he kind of took the league by storm and he stunk the rest of the way. He stunk. He, uh, was one of the least efficient quarterbacks in the NFL from weeks four through 17 of his rookie year. He dealt with, uh, 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 delivery and mechanical issues as a rookie uh, that he needed to go to a quarterback coach in the off season, in that uh, off season and uh, to go fix those quarterback issues. And it actually caused some dissent inside the Eagles organization. No one remembers this stuff, hmm. but the, like the, uh, the coaching staff was kind of pissed off at him at the time. But Everything kind of came together for him. Howie Roseman went out and he was like, you know, our rookie quarterback struggled and we need to put more pieces around him. So he went out and he signed Alshon Jeffrey. He went out and he signed uh, Torrey Smith, who was not a you know huge contributor, but he was like a, a solid role player for the Eagles. They got a breakout year from uh, Zach Ertz and Nelson Aguilar, who to that point, Zach Ertz to a lesser extent, but Nelson Aguilar was considered a bust. And Zach Ertz was considered a guy who was just very inconsistent. Um, their offensive line exploded. They went out and signed Brandon Brooks. Lane Johnson, who the previous year had been suspended for 10 games, played every game, you know. And uh, Jason Kelsey stayed healthy. And, you know, their offensive line was among the best. Their defense exploded. Their defense largely stayed healthy. They did lose Jordan Hicks, but up front, you know, they created a ton of pressure. They uh, went out and got a, added, you know, uh, Derek Barnett, their first round pick. Uh, they signed Chris Long. You know, they added Timmy Jernigan in that trade that we mentioned previously. Ronald Darby uh, was a, a big time contributor for them in the second half. You know, they, uh, they signed Rodney McLeod away from the um, from the Rams. You know, they just got so much better as a team. But there was a, peer, a a significant period where Carson Wentz was a huge question mark. And how would Carson Wentz, being a huge question mark, how would that have gone under Hugh Jackson? He'd have been traded by now. <laughs> would he have gotten benched for Cody Kessler? I mean, that's like a, a, a serious question. I know it sounds absurd, but like, would, would he have gotten benched? Oh, he, 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 like, how, how would have Hugh Jackson dealt with Carson Wentz struggling? I think he would have got a slightly longer leash purely if he was taken in the first round. But yeah, by now, he probably um, would be a backup to somebody else. Um, he wouldn't be on the team. Um, might have been traded off like the same way Kaiser was because I didn't really have that much of an issue of keeping Kaiser but the minute you knew coming into this season you had Hugh Jackson it was like well there's, you can't have them both on the same team 
because he has done that much to ruin the poor young lad's head. Uh, by the way, he was in and out um, and then just basically given some of the hardest uh, playbook and it was like launch the ball downfield every time. Well, it's just not going to work. You, you get some of these young QBs come in now and it's like throw it five yards, throw it ten yards really quick. Um, and Josh Allen. Josh Allen came in and I, I laughed. I was like, they're never going to get anything productive out of him. And they've set him up with some plays that are quite short. And he's had moments where you're like, yeah, he's not the real deal. But at the same time, he's looked functionable. Whereas if they'd have come in and gone, right, every time you're going to throw it 40 yards like we're playing Madden. Um, and you're just going to get interceptions. And that, that's what they did to Kaiser. He, I think he was highest in the league for downfield passes um, I it don't was. know what distance, but it was like it's, it just made no sense to do that with a rookie. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to uh, Deshaun Watson. Okay. So the pick that Deshaun Watson went at was uh, number 12 overall in last year's, in the t- 2017 draft. Yeah. Number 12, number 12 overall. What did the Browns acquire in exchange for. Um, Trading the number 12 pick away. I believe it was 25, which became David Njoku. And then the previous year, or and then uh, this year, it was the became the number four. Yeah. Uh, because they got an additional first-round pick. Uh, and it became number four, Denzel Ward. Um, so is, is there any NFL GM in – is there any GM in the NFL – that would not trade the number 12 for the 25 and the 4. Yeah, it's just, it, 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 okay. it probably wasn't going to be that lucky um, until the Deshaun Watson injury, but it would still be a decent and high enough pick. Yeah, I mean, are you sure? I mean, so Denzel Ward went, first of all, he went a lot higher than I think a lot of people were expected. So, and he may have been available at like 12 if the Browns had gotten the 12 pick, but the Browns like fell in love with him, and for good reason, because hey, he's a friggin' baller. Um, but also uh, with the Sean Watson, although he put up some great numbers as a rookie, he was only three and three as a starter. Mm. So I mean, it's, it wasn't like he was out there, you know, dominating games. And uh, JJ Watt and Whitney, Whitney Merciless also got injured that year. But this was a brilliant move by Sashi. Because and it was a very Sam Hinkie like move. I don't know. Do you are you familiar with Sam Hinkie? Yeah, uh, basketball. I don't know the team. It was yeah. the Seventy Sixers. Yeah, and, and he and he took a very similar approach. Although he wanted to do like a five six year tank, <laughs> you know. And I mean, he positioned them very the Sixers very well. But but anyways. What he what what Sashi did here? So if you looked at the Texans from if you just looked at like all the NFL teams and teams that were uh, check boxes for regression going from the 2016 to 2017 season, uh, the Texans were among the the teams that were likeliest to regress based on their score or their record in one score games, based on uh, their previous injury luck, you know, based on their uh, point differential. And if you're going to use like factors like that, and you're looking at a team that you want to bet against, you want to target them for a trade because you think that 
they're going to get worse the next year, right? You want to make trades with this team. Do, do you understand what I'm saying, Jack? Uh, oh, yeah. So there was other yeah. stats like um, yeah. it was catchable um, drop rate. Their drop rate was insanely um, low when Deshaun Watson was in there. So the thought that he was going to keep throwing these balls that receivers make drops. Well, and I mean, he wasn't on the drop. team the previous year. I'm talking about... Oh, like, okay. That year, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about like teams that were going to be worse heading from 2016 to 2017. The Texans checked like every single box. That's what Sam Hinkie did when he made trades with the Sacramento Kings and the Brooklyn, I don't know, the Brooklyn basketball team. Is that even around anymore? I don't know. Is it Brooklyn Nets? Brooklyn Nets, okay, yeah. So he made trades with these teams where he was like betting against the team, Mm. you know, so that, hey, if they're terrible, I might end up with like a top five pick. And that's exactly what happened with the Texans. You know, did he wind up with some technically good fortune? Um, Yeah, probably. But guess what? Like, so much about of this is all about good fortune. I mean, so much of of this is about good fortune. We've talked about this the entire damn show. Yep. So, um, I mean, he he put the, the Browns in optimal position. He put them in position to where they had two top four picks in a draft where five quarterbacks were selected in the first round, the most since 1983. It's incredible. Uh, the one thing that many people were rumoured at the time and sort of uh, people like Ben Albright have sort of come out and said it would have happened if Mahomes would have dropped to 12 apparently they were willing to take him there um, they were never going to trade up for him um, so it wasn't truly in love but lots of people were saying if Mahomes would have dropped to 12 that that would have been the Browns pick rather than a trade well I don't think that they ever thought of them selves as a team that even if they were quote unquote in love that would suggest that they think that they can outdraft other teams they knew they couldn't outdraft other teams they were never going to fall in love with anyone what they were going to do is they were going to sit back you know they were going to listen to every trade offer they made more trades during that what you know 20 month stint where Sashi Brown and Paul DePodesta were running the organization than any team in the NFL because they were willing to listen to everything and um, and they knew that they didn't have everything figured out. What what people are people are crazy in the in the NFL. Like people think that like Sashi Brown and Paul DePodesta thought that they were smarter than other people, which they first of all they actually were, but they didn't operate like that they operated in the most humble manner that you possibly can understanding your limitations understanding that you don't have all this shit figured out and that's how they conducted themselves and that's why they they would never trade up for for someone i mean they would never they didn't make a single trade up as far as i know uh, on the during the sashi brown regime i think the only one they did i believe they traded back up into the bottom of the first round once. Um, I don't know if that was the Njoku pick. That yeah. They, they yeah, gave up a, a fourth. On a, on a, on a five-year contract, it, it, 
uh, instead of a four. That yeah. that would make sense. I think they gave up a fourth round pick to move up like three or four spots, which um, for that extra um, years guarantee, uh, it makes sense. It's the only That's reason. That's a no-brainer because they also understand that the likeliest outcome from a fourth round pick is like a special teams player. And so, yeah, if they if they did have a conviction about one player, I mean, they made more draft picks also during that period than any other team in the NFL. So that would make sense, you know, that they, they had conviction on the one dude. You know, it, it was worth it to uh, secure him on the um, on the five-year deal. Njoku is looking like a, a player that's finally breaking out. Um, he, he, it's coming together for him because Baker throws at him. Um, and he was just one of their many weapons um, over the last uh, season um, that you just shouted at the TV of why weren't they on the field? Um, and it was frustrating because you'd watch a press conference and the only thing the beat writers wanted to ask is, oh, who's going to be the backup quarterback this week? And who's going to be the starter? And are you going to bench this person? And it was like no questions on why is Ogunjobi not playing? Why is um, Njoku not playing? Why is Duke Johnson not out there more? And as a fan, you can sit there and you can watch it and it's like, well, you're the beat writers. You're meant to be asking these questions and many of them just didn't really seem to bother. We need to go through and tell the people what they actually added. And we're not going to treat it as, oh, let's look at all the misses, you know, because there are a lot of dudes on this list that didn't work out, and no one is surprised by that, including Sashi. So let's talk about the dudes that they added that are uh, building blocks just from the draft, okay? I mean, the free agency, they crush free agency. For some reason, like, people have no idea what they're talking about. People focus on Kenny Britt, but they don't, but they say nothing about Kevin Zeitler, J.C. Treader, Jason McCourty, you know, just crushing free agency and having no context either. Looking at, um, oh, uh, Ryan Pace is supposed to win uh, NFL Executive of the Year this year. I dare you to look at his 2017 free agent class. I dare you. Marcus Cooper, Mike Glennon, Deion Sims, um, who else? Uh, Quentin Demps. Like these guys are like out of the NFL, and they gave them big contracts. And like now, Glennon. all of a sudden, a year later, he's being talked about as NFL exec- executive of the year. And he did have a good free agency period in 2018, but it just goes to show you that these guys are just throwing darts like everyone else, man. So, all right, so let's talk about the draft picks. Miles Garrett, uh, one of the best pass rushers in the NFL already. Jabril Peppers, we've established um, above average starting safety with room for growth. David Njoku, as far as I'm concerned, top 10 NFL tight end already in year two. Um, Deshaun Kaiser on the Packers. He was a project. Hugh Jackson ruined him. Mm. You know, I mean, I don't think he's going to become a great player or anything, but he was worth a shot at pick number 52. Larry Ogunjobi, one of the best uh, interior defensive linemen in the NFL. Howard Wilson just has been hurt and, you know, what are you going to do about that? Fourth round pick, uh, fifth round pick, Roderick Johnson on another team. Caleb Brantley was a great uh, uh, sixth round flyer. He's now on the Redskins. Uh, Dorsey just had no ties to him and cut him. Zane Gonzalez was a decent kicker as a rookie. Uh, took him in with the seventh round and then he, you know, blew some games and they had to move on, whatever. He's a seventh round kicker. Seventh round pick, Matthew Days. He's not on the team anymore. Uh, as far as I know, Corey Coleman, he was a bust. 
they drafted a bust at number 15 overall uh, in 2016. This is a, a situation of, are you going to play the results game? Because to me, Corey Coleman, and I watched a ton of him at Baylor, he checked almost every box. And I thought he was a great pick. He reminded me of Odell Beckham, you know, with, with the way that he played on college tape. And I think his heart just wasn't in it. And it's hard to know what's in a dude's heart. And, I mean, look, that was a bust. We're not going to let him off the hook for that. You know, but when we're playing the hindsight revisionist game, you know, he he was a, an absolute miss. Yeah. Second round, Emmanuel Agba, solid defensive line contributor at worst, you know, low-end starter probably at best. Carl Nassib, no idea what they, why they cut him, uh, you know, this year under the new regime other than it's just being – the new regime and, you know, they have egos and they cut the guy and Nassib goes on to be a solid contributor for another team and hurts you when he, when he plays him. Sean Coleman, they gave up on him, you know, relatively early, I thought, uh, but, you know, not a good uh, late th- or, uh, fourth round pick. Cody Kessler, currently the Jaguar starting quarterback. I don't know why they cut him or moved on from him either. They got nothing like a late seven mm-hmm. for him, a late conditional seven. You know, I would rather have him than be paying Drew Stanton. Uh, but you know, this, these new regime, you know, new regimes love to um, you know be uh, you know, do what they want to do. Uh, next guy, Joe Schobert, Pro Bowl, every down uh, middle linebacker, one of the best middle linebackers in football. Ricardo Lewis not doing anything. Derek Kindred. Um, absolute contributor, really solid special teams player. Plays a lot on defense. Seth the Valve has been hurt too much, but he has definitely flashed when he's been in there. Jordan Payton out of the league. Spencer Drango, I think he's on a different team. Rashard Higgins is uh, a contributor, uh, you know, not a difference maker, but you know, a top four receiver on the Browns, and he's been solid. He keeps getting better every year. Trey Caldwell, I think he's gone. Scooby Wright is on on a different team. So, look, they have a bunch of guys here who are not, you know in the NFL or on different teams already, but that's not surprising when you have like 23 freaking draft picks in two years. And they also set up the, the, the next regime to have the number one, the number four, the 33, the 35, the 65, the 67, the 105. Okay, so what is, geez, what is that? Oh, my God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Is that eight picks in the top 105? Yeah, it, it was. And then, unfortunately, um, basically everything day two, um, other than Nick Chubb, hasn't gone really well. Uh, the Tyrod Taylor trade was just infuriating. Um, but, no, it, it set it up and... For me, I would loved to turn that. Even though I love Denzel Ward, I'd love to have traded back with the Bills right. and added more pieces and just kept the thing rolling. Yeah, me too. I mean, you know, but um, I, I mean, I, 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 I've said my piece here. I'm, I'm, I think I'm done talking about Sashi. This is gonna be my last podcast that I ever do about Sashi, so I'm gonna retire that. Um, you know, the facts are the facts, man, and. If you if if you want to be like if you want to work hard and you want to you know study situations 
uh, like they should be studied and you want to actually put the time in uh, to understanding, you know, what went on and, you know, all the thought processes behind all this, you know, you're going to separate yourself from the pack. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of you, Jack, that you've done that. And I consider myself, you know, someone who has done that. And there have been a lot of people in the fantasy community that have done that. And, you know, I, I love the fantasy community for their conviction, for their passion to all this stuff. And, you know, I, I think, and I think that you can always spot a charlatan, uh, when they do NFL draft revisionist history. Yeah, it's one of them. You see it all the time um, of going, oh, you should have drafted this player. That It's like going this year that, oh, you should have taken Philip Lindsay in the uh, second round rather than some of the other running backs that were picked. It, yeah, right. It's, it's, uh, yeah, there's always going to be free agent, um, sort of UDFA uh, or late round running backs, but it's like to say, oh, yeah, anyone could have picked him in the third or fourth round rather than X player. It's like, yeah, well, it's not quite that easy. So, massive thank you for coming on the show, Evan. It's been an absolute joy to chat to you. One of the, the greatest minds in uh, fantasy football right now. Um, thank you for coming on. Can you just let everyone know where to find you if they're not obviously finding you, uh, following you? I don't know why they wouldn't be. Um, where to get your shows. Obviously, you do stuff with Josh Norris and everyone else. So, just let people know where to catch you. Yeah, just uh, Roto World Football, uh, at Evan Silva on Twitter. Check out that podcast. Uh, schematic atrocities uh, it was with uh, Matt Kelly and I and it's it was a blast to do I think it's a blast to listen to um, and uh, it's like so much of it it is like very prescient to this day uh, we predicted the Browns becoming a much better team you know a lot of our predictions actually worked out and uh, but yeah thanks so much for having me on Jack uh, it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for coming on and uh yeah, the future's bright, Browns fans. Sashi's laid the uh, foundations, and uh, let's look forward to uh, what comes next.